Hey everybody, welcome to, uh, I guess kind of a special episode of Nerd Legion in that, uh, control has been turned over to me. You can see I've changed the overlay a little bit. I wanted the, we're in the Millennium Falcon now, which is appropriate because we're talking Ahsoka. Um, I've got the controls in front there. You see, we, Monty has been exiled to, uh, you know, where are you right now? Tahoe, right? Or something I'm like that? I'm in Tahoe. Yeah. He's currently homeless. And uh, shooting this on the road, so you know we'll 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 make things work as we go along. But we didn't want to leave you hanging for too many weeks without an episode. Uh, but we kind of needed a chance for for the show to kind of catch up too, right? So there's been three episodes of Ahsoka and Monty. Now we get to talk about them. Hooray. I'm I'm excited. Uh, are you are you thrilled with where Ahsoka is going, Doa? I I am uh, overall enjoying the series. I will say that I I'm liking it. I, I'm liking Ahsoka with the caveat that episode three was one of the worst episodes of television I've ever seen in my life. It was the most <laughs> boring, forty five minutes to an hour. I can't remember of of TV in like recent memory. It was it was quite bad. But then episode four and five really brought us back on track to the point where I'm pretty excited about where the show's going. You know what I like about Star Wars is it doesn't matter who's writing it. It doesn't matter which arc it is. They're just going to do the same things that have already be, been done in <laughs> Star Wars over and over and over again. Uh, with the sequel movies, it was let's rebuild the Death Star one more time because we hadn't done it two times before. Uh, we had to build mm -hmm. another one effectively. And this time it was let's just take the training sequence from the Millennium oh, Falcon in A New Hope, but make do it, worse. it, but make it worse <laughs> and do it again, and then also let's take the, uh, the the Tie Fighter attack on the Millennium Falcon and just do it again, and then let's cut in some of the elements of Darth Vader at the first Death Star with the same exact camera shots in the cockpits of the fighters mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Shin and and. Uh, Maroc or Maroc or whatever his name Maruk? is. Maruk? <laughs> uh, the, the smoke monster from Lost? We'll get to that later. But, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, that, well, so we're, we're just going to talk about him in sequence. Episodes three, four, and five. This is like the most on track I think we've ever been in an episode. But uh, but I think we were, you know, it's been a couple weeks. We are excited to do another episode, I think. But yeah, episode three begins with uh, literally a worse version of the Luke training scene from uh, A New Hope, where it's just... Take that scene. Let's 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 go back and think about that scene in New Hope for a moment, where it's it's very concise, it's very to the point, it's interesting, it gives you sort of a glimpse of of the force and how it can be used. And now take that scene and stretch it out to about, you know, like quintuple the or sextuple the length, right? And then uh, make it uh, much more boring, where turn it into just like another sort of like martial arts, oh, uh, now I'm over here, now I'm over here. You know, we've seen not only the scene before in Star Wars, but we've also seen it in other like martial arts films when someone has to learn to fight blind. Like, we've seen this without the Force context as well. And I mean, they put her in a mask that's clearly just a hockey goalie mask with like some kendo stuff stuck on the front. And it's it's one of the worst props I've ever seen in Star Wars, to be honest. It's like, so everything about this scene is just terrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's it's just, it's so bad. Like, and then, then the Ahsoka theme begins at the end of it. And I was like, I wish there was just a skip that button, you know, on, on Disney Plus. Because that scene just did not need to exist at all. We learned nothing. Because we already knew that Sabine was struggling with using the Force. We already know that Ahsoka has agreed to like start trainer, training her again. Like We can assume this kind of thing is happening without being shown it in excruciating detail. So, yeah, that was just absolute throwaway scene. Didn't need that. Um, and then we got into the episode, which, 
you know, didn't really get much better, honestly. <laughs> I think, I mean, the entire episode was just that training sequence plus the the chase towards the hyperspace gate. Yeah. And yeah. The, the hyperspace gate thing obviously gets more interesting. I, I did, as you, as you say, yeah, as you say, I did enjoy four and five as they actually advanced the plot. Mm -hmm. But it was just these fighters chasing this ship and then them uh running straight into the hyperspace gate that's shooting the turbo lasers at them and i really just don't understand who young is a character because he's the one who's always mm. so cautious and is trying to turn things off at the last minute and in this episode he's just saying yeah get a little bit closer you know just get a little bit closer and he's not yeah. the one bailing them out at the last possible second which is what they've set this droid's character up to be see if you can get a little closer are you crosswire closer please and then, of course, they don't actually get destroyed, followed by the most puzzling decision that Ahsoka makes in this series, which is, I can put on a spacesuit with my tentacle head extremely <laughs> fast, like yeah. really fast, in a matter of 30 seconds, which I don't know if it's physically possible to do that. And then in she the says she's going to go... Jumped in like that. <laughs> slid right in. <laughs> and so she gets in the spacesuit and then goes outside of the ship, which she says is to distract them. Now, I don't know <laughs> how this distracts them logically, Noah, because she's still standing on the ship that they're firing at. So their target hasn't changed <laughs> at all. And she just does some flips and like blocks some of the lasers, but most of them still hit the ship. There's a Jedi also, in the wing of the plane. <laughs> exactly. Why would you why would you shoot at her in this circumstance instead of just blowing up the ship, which is also going to kill her? So I have yeah. no idea why Ahsoka thinks this is going to work. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you why. I actually have an answer for you immediately on this. And the reason is, is because it wasn't enough to rehash two scenes from A New Hope. We also had to rehash, and I'm not even kidding, a scene from Episode Nine. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker, in which, uh, you know, Kylo Ren charges Rey with his TIE fighter and she flips over him and, and chops it with her lightsaber. So we've literally seen this exact thing uh, in the most recent Star Wars film, which admittedly probably not as many people watch because, you know, that trilogy was terrible. But uh, it's another rehash. Like, we don't, it's, it's not interesting. We've seen it before. And like you said, it, the whole thing is just nonsensical, right? That whole space, like, uh, fight scene just didn't really do anything for me because we know that the only people that are in any real mortal danger are just the chaff robot slash bad guys. <laughs> it's like the putties from from uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Like they're just there to be beat up. That's their only purpose in life, right? So we know we know they're going to get blown up, but we know none of the other main characters are going to be even be touched. Obviously, so there's no drama here. Um, and then we get to a point where there is more of a hide-and-seek uh, starship chase scene through the fog around the, the star whales and the tentacles, and that was a really neat set piece, I thought. I was like, we just could have skipped the whole meaningless space battle and then just had this sort of like hide-and-seek in this neat set piece with these giant flying creatures like in this cloudy sort of fog bank. Fog bank. Like, I kind of liked that scene. That was neat. But that's kind of this whole episode's problem where it's like, there's some cool elements in it, but we just have a lot of needless kind of filler in there too. Like this episode really felt like they were just, they needed to pad things out for some reason. Um, and I wonder if that kind of goes back to the fact that a lot of these series that we see, Kenobi included, would have done better as maybe like a one or two movie thing, you know, where you could cut a lot of this stuff out and make a pretty tight piece with it. But it has to be a streaming series now, so we have to fill time. And that's what this episode felt like a, there was a lot of.
I mean, though, my biggest fear at this point in time, because we still haven't seen Thrawn yet by the end of episode five, and mm. that means that he's not going to be in, he's going to be in less than half the series at this point in time. My biggest fear is that they waste all this time on these fluff scenes that we saw in episode one of this show and then episode three, and that they're just going to kill Thrawn at the end of this series. And so we're just going to get no Thrawn and all fluff. No, no, no. You don't have to worry about that. We know that's not going to okay. happen because it's Great. already it's already been stated somewhere that the plan is for like an Avengers style team up of all of the post Jedi characters, Mandalorian, all that kind of stuff, uh, meeting up with Ahsoka and Sabine and everything again for like a big showdown series with Thrawn as the big bad. Think of it right. as like the okay. Avengers Endgame. So yeah, Good. so Thrawn right. is. As far as I'm aware, Thrawn is in no danger whatsoever in Ahsoka. So don't worry. <laughs> Lars Mikkelsen will be just fine. He might be dead in The Witcher. He is dead in The Witcher, isn't he? Yeah, he's dead in The Witcher. But he's he'll, he'll be alive in this, I think. Yeah, he'll be okay. All right, well, well, that allays my fear. I mean, that's it for episode three. It was just nothing. It was just nothing at all. So yeah. we can actually talk about some of the more interesting stuff, I think, that happens in, in four and five. Um, You know, there. I think we do need to touch on the New Republic scene where Hera chats with the, the, the chancellors or oh, whatever it is, like the, the, the politicians. I feel like we need to we need to touch on that for a moment because I think part of making all of this make sense is they have to show the New Republic as as this governing body that's kind of dysfunctional. And, and I felt like they did a fairly good job with that, right? Where the guy that wasn't involved in the war and kind of sat it out, he's more, you know, worried about, like, using the resources to build the Republic. They kind of want to bury their heads in the sand and not admit that there's another threat out there when they've just finished this big war. So that scene is frustrating as a viewer because you're like, no, there's this big threat. Why don't they understand? But when you think about it from their perspective, it's like they're, you know, up to their, like, ears in, like, stuff trying to set up this new Republic and cobble this thing together with all these you know, existing Empire remnants out there that the last thing they want is another big thing to have to deal with. So I, I like that they include that kind of scene because it makes the rest of it make sense as why our heroes are kind of on their own with this. So I think that's an important scene to kind of include. So in terms so of I would three value, I, there it is. <laughs> I would agree with you because I do think it's really important to explain why the New Republic isn't doing anything about this threat. However, my counter argument is that they just got off of that planet where they were attacked by Imperial loyalists and a hyperdrive was stolen, in mm. which case there is actual probable cause for them to at least send some amount of resources to track this down because it's not True. theoretical. It's not in the shadows. We literally just saw the sequence where the characters were themselves attacked on a core world in Corellia. Mm. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that they would just... Uh, abandon any kind of investigation when they have, I would assume, a massive military. I mean, they have trillions of people who could be going out and investigating this thing. You would think they would send at least a scouting mission, maybe just to go take a look at I what's think, going on. I think that's where, like, the, the bury their heads in the sand thing kind of comes in. All right. But this is, again, you're just interpreting what I'm, they're doing and not I'm making it to, logical. I'm trying to understand it, right? I'm trying to be the <laughs> avatar, uh, well, because I am the avatar of the fan that wants this desperately to be good. Uh, so, I, you know, and, and I, I am you know, fully uh, prepared to admit the flaws. But I, I think that is there, where within the context, a Star Wars fan would know that. Now, that said, what you're about to say is that a big Star Wars fan is kind of left in the dark with this, and it makes not much sense, which you're totally right. I, I did appreciate that they addressed it, though, so I think they get half a point from me from at least trying <laughs> to cover plot holes, that's even something. though if you think about it for two seconds, it doesn't <laughs> actually hold up. But I agree yeah. that that scene was important. I just think that... 
it could have been done differently and better, um, you know, if they if they actually had addressed what had actually happened. And I think this is especially just to jump forward for one moment into the into the future episodes. They try and address this later at the end of episode five mm -hmm. when uh, Hera's talking to Mon Mothma on the spaceship and Mon Mothma is asking her if she has any evidence that this thing was there. Which is like completely ridiculous because they do they not have like dash cams on their spaceships in the future? They oh, yeah. literally just saw the the hyperspace ring jump into hyperspace. They have multiple corroborating witnesses from the X wings Two that people are with died. Them. People like... <laughs> died. Uh, do they does do they just not trust Hera, a general, to be credible in terms of her eyewitness account? And also, surely they would have recordings. Hey Doa, remember when they took the scan of the ship? So they literally have the scan oh, yeah. of the ship. And she says, Do you have any evidence? And they say, Nah, we don't. And she says, Okay, well then I guess you have to abandon our mission. So that it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, is, that is a bit more egregious. No <laughs> You're right. So the there. problem is is that the the council and Mon Mothma gets more ridiculous later on, which makes the first meeting look even stupider in, in retrospect. Fair but point. when you literally have the scan of the ship, and you could say something like, well, Oh Hu Yang has it, and uh, he's inside the space whale, so they can't get it. But, you know, they could just transmit it to Hera. I would think they would give that to Hera immediately, because it well, seems kind of can't. important. Maybe they can't transmit it. Because the whales are really thick, and uh, and they're she going to give it to her. So, yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> she would have given it to her immediately. That's like the first thing you would do, right? Is you would yeah. say, "Hey, Hera, uh, we scanned that giant ass ring, and so here's the scan." And Mamathma says, "Do you have any evidence?" And apparently, they have no sensor logs of their own. They have no corroborating witnesses. They don't trust Hera, a high-ranking military official, to tell the truth to them or to make judgment calls. They and they mysteriously. They mysteriously lost the scan. Yeah, and I mean, I yeah, there's there's no excuse for that. That's that that I do have to agree with you on. But uh, you know, to be fair, Ahsoka was quite busy during that episode. She wasn't really around to be sending it. She was in in the shadow realm. Uh, do you think? Hey, no, here's Anakin. a question. Do you think yeah. Hu Yang, when he was just chilling there on the planet, would have just given it to Hera? He's not very smart. Because uh, considering they don't even know if Ahsoka's alive, you would think that Hu Yang would say. Hey Hera, I don't know if anyone else is alive. Here's the scan we took. <laughs> that's probably that's a fair point. Yeah, I can't defend that. But uh, let's let's uh, let's get back on track. Let's get back on track, I suppose. But that that is true. Yeah, I mean the whole console thing is just uh, it's falling apart. I had forgotten about. It. I actually well, here's the state of things for me is I forgot that scene happened in episode five. So yeah. So that kind of tells you how how hard that's hitting, I guess. But uh, outside of that stuff, I was very happy with episodes uh, four and five. Um, episode four was called Fallen Jedi, and uh, it dealt a lot, uh, which the title could be referring to Shin and Balin's skull, but it could also be referring to Ahsoka as well. I mean, uh, the whole thing, I think, of these two episodes is sort of like, where is Ahsoka in relation to the light and dark side of the Force, right? And she's kind of she's kind of in the middle, and there's, there's uh, evidence for... For uh, you know that both sides. First of all, the best thing about this episode is that things happen. Um, after episode three, I was worried, but things actually happened in these episodes, so that was good. Um, but 
Yeah, we have good characters doing bad things and bad characters making convincing arguments for why you should join them, which is which is a good dynamic, I think, to have, well, especially when you're talking about Star Wars and the Force and all that kind of stuff and sort of the fallout of everything that happened in the Clone Wars and all that. So I, I really like these episodes. But what's what's your initial take on, on episode four? So, you know, I think these are these are generally quite good outside of the massive plot holes that I brought up with the council and them you know, not believing this mission for whatever reason. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, there is a functional reason that we can't have them believe because it, it has to enable Thrawn to come back, right? The, the, the mission with the hyperspace ring from the Imperial remnants has to be successful, right? Yeah. So I'm willing to forgive it because it's setting up a larger narrative. And I think in general, this show is significantly, significantly, significantly stronger than the the sequel trilogy and it's much more entertaining and it's much more believable. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and you touched on this the last episode we, we spoke on about it, but you know, what I like is that with the collapse of the Jedi order, it, everything has kind of gone gray in terms of dark versus light Jedi, Jedi versus Sith, all of this other stuff. And you see people have different motives and indeed, um, you know, especially with Sabine, Balin isn't, acting in a malevolent in an entirely malevolent way right he he has his own goals but he also is a man of his word as he says at the end and will take sabine to go find ezra right so mm -hmm. he's not somebody that's entirely corrupted even if though he is genuinely doing things that most other people would not be cool with within the the scope of the the goals of the new republic right yeah, and I mean, he doesn't really kind of like unleash his fury on Ahsoka until he's worried about Shin being injured, you know, where, you know, she she throws Shin into a rock pillar and he's like, all right, now you now you've done it. And, uh, you know, it's, that's it's so he, easy to defeat Shin, by the way, just, after all of that fighting yeah. that happens earlier in the forest. She's still an apprentice. She's still an apprentice. And I think that's I, I really like how that character is being portrayed, because you can tell she's she's very dedicated to trying to be evil and she's trying to, like, be the best uh, version of her her evil apprentice self. But she also has this this feeling of being overwhelmed the entire time, too, where it's like she's supposed to stop, you know, Ahsoka and Sabine and then. She sees a smoke monster uh, inquisitor guy get uh, cut down, and then she's like, uh, "What do I do?" I'm like, well, I'll just keep fighting Sabine, and and you know, so she she does a good job of being the apprentice that's like being kind of overwhelmed by the whole situation, you know. And so it makes sense to me that she'd show up, and Ahsoka would be like, "Oh no, where's Sabine?" And just kind of lashes out, does a very dark side thing, and grabs her and throws her into a pillar, you know. Definitely a, a something done out of anger, which uh, you know is of course like not a, a Jedi light side kind of thing to do. Then that that uh you know triggers balin and then he you know obviously defeats her quite quickly which is like oh okay so he kind of was just sort of messing around with her the entire time which is kind of makes his character cooler which man it sucks that uh we have such limited time with with uh race even seen this yeah. role assumably that you know that is probably just this season and that's it because man what a great character like uh i i hope they had a end for his character planned in this season already because it would be really tragic to just have to kind of write him off the show you know because the actor passed away in real life but man he is like crushing it in that role he's so good um at just being that jedi that's like he's just doing his thing and he will do dark side things or light side things if it gets him to that objective but he doesn't want to hurt anyone that he doesn't have to hurt you know 
So, so it's unfortunate that we won't see him, but his character, mm -hmm. obviously there are ways you can write yourselves out of these situations. You could sure. basically Darth, Darth Vaderize him and use a body double and, you know, have him in a mask, which would not be unusual for the Sith, obviously, and sure. then do some sort of, uh, you know, voice modification. So you still get the, the same character. You could do some other kind of transformation. Uh, think about what Terry Gilliam did in the Imaginarium of Dr. Mm. Parnassus when yeah. Heath Ledger died, for example. He basically turned the Heath Ledger character into three different actors, right? So there's there's very creative ways that you can you can get around and some of these scenarios, but it does You can just recast bad. him. You can just recast yeah, yeah. him, too. As, as, as bad as that sounds, because Ray Stevenson is, is so good in this role. Like, Think of uh, think about uh, you know Dumbledore and Harry Potter. They had to re yeah. recast him, obviously. I, and I, what, for some reason, I'm I'm not able to think of the actor's name right now. But Richard Harris. Yeah, yeah. So he was great, obviously. Then he passed away, and then they did replace him, and the new actor did a fine job. Um, you know, brought his own spin to it. So I don't think there's anything wrong with recasting people. In fact, I would I would love to have Luke Skywalker recast in his Mandalorian appearances <laughs> instead of just CG face Luke Skywalker. Like it's very good CG, but it's just it's still not convincing enough to me, you know. I would rather see someone and you're denying some actor out there a chance to be in this role, which I think is kind of unfortunate too, you know. Like let people have a chance to take on these characters and and see what they're going to do with them, you know. I think from the craft of acting standpoint it's kind of it's really too bad that we're not getting more recasts i mean we recasted han solo why can't we recast you know Leia and luke too why do they have to have cg faces but anyway uh why can't digress. we just have new characters uh that, that'd be my question that, that's true but if you're gonna bring them back just recast them but um you know i, I do like that we are getting some new characters in this right i mean balon skull's new shinati is new um the rebels characters are are you know they were obviously in that animated series but they are new characters overall to the star wars universe right. So yeah, I, 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 that's and that's another reason why I like this as a as a sequel, excuse me, sequel trilogy replacement, right? Because we're we're doing we're doing something that feels much more Star Wars. We're continuing on the the um, original trilogy in a more logical way, um, and we're doing it with new characters, which is which is pretty cool. We know the other ones are out there and they're doing things, but we don't necessarily need them in the story. But man, I've got so many good things to say about this this episode. Um, um, but one thing I want to bring ahead. up uh, is that, first off, this episode is very interesting in terms of aesthetics. And what I liked about four and five overall, I'm sure we'll get to, is that the the, the fight choreography was extremely oh, good. Yeah. Um, and we got to see a lot of different flavors of, uh, you know, combat, which was interesting. But before we start that, it's funny to me because I, I started in the last episode discussing how this reminded me a lot of a, a spaghetti Western and the way that it was shot and and the, the kind of cinematography decisions that are being made. But what happens in episode four is this just goes full Akira Kurosawa. And those samurai films have been, Lucas has said repeatedly that they have been a very big inspirational point for Star Wars as a whole. But you really, really see it here, including just straight rips out of samurai movies. So mm -hmm. let's talk about like the, the Kurosawa influences, not only the cinematography, but this looks like they're fighting in a cherry blossom forest. So it, it visually evokes those samurai movies instantly. You get Ahsoka's, not only her lightsabers, which look like Japanese swords, uh, including, you know, the katana and the smaller sword that uh, the, I think it's called the wakazashi that samurais use in combat. So she uses the two swords. 
uh, her fighting style is obviously very reminiscent and draws a lot of inspiration from Japanese sword techniques. And then on top of that, you even have direct visual references to Kurosawa movies. So in the film Sanjiro, uh, which is the sequel to Yojimbo, so it's, it's one of the many Kurosawa films that stars Toshiro Mifune. Mm -hmm. At the end of Sanjiro, uh, the last scene is a duel scene where Sanjiro, uh, they stand there and they do a single strike across each other. And that results in his enemy uh, spewing this massive burst of blood uh, yeah. out of him, which is a very iconic film scene. And they basically do that exact same scene with Maruk uh, and Ahsoka, where they stand there for a second, get into their stance, and then it's the single strike that shoots all that gas out of Maruk. But it is it, it looks to me like a one-to-one uh, copy of that scene from Sanjiro. And what's interesting is that scene in particular was never meant to happen in the original Kurosawa movie right. because it was supposed to spew just a little bit of blood, but it ended up just like spewing an epic <laughs> amount of blood. And it was so ridiculous and iconic that uh, Kurosawa kept it in the film. And then that informed, obviously, Kill Bill Volume 1, where they did that. Uh, countless when, animes. like that Countless is... animes, Ninja Scroll, like all of, yeah. basically all of anime. So it was an accident that caused that huge blood spurt to happen. It was a prop which malfunction. Did, yeah. yeah, it was a prop malfunction. And then that came out later on uh, to, to basically influence all this anime and all the cinema and even this. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really iconic moment in film history. But because it's so iconic, it is kind of ridiculous if you know film history that they use this because it, it is a, it's a straight rip. It's a straight yeah. rip. Yeah, and I, I think I think there's the thing is is I'm more forgiving of something like that because that's meant to that feels more clearly like a a, a small homage, right? It doesn't take very yeah. long. It's it's you know it's done well. Whereas the other things we talked about in episode three. You're just copying entire scenes, you know, and you're, and yeah. you're doing and from it the, the same franchise way. too, not from and a film exactly. that's like seventy years old, right? Yeah. Um, so I think we need to differentiate that, you know, the the utilization of you know inspiration from other films is is executed in a very meaningfully different way between that scene yeah. and then the stuff we were talking about in episode three. But but they also just even the music goes like full Japanese in a lot yeah. of this. You have the the fue, the Japanese flute. I think I heard some shamisen in there. Uh, I definitely heard like the taiko drums and everything. Mm -hmm. So they really are pushing. They really are pushing the Kurosawa parallels, which you know I like Kurosawa. I'm a huge fan of Kurosawa, so it doesn't bother me. And I think it really works in the context of this show. Yeah. So I enjoyed those elements of it. And to your point, yeah, I didn't I didn't mind the rip of that scene, but it is just really really obvious if you know what you're looking for. What I did mind was Marok's incredibly stupid helicopter blade that he turned <laughs> on right before he died. Why did she wait for him to spin it up? I mean, clearly that's... that's So in case you're not familiar with it, the the uh, Inquisitors were a group of uh, dark Jedi that were recruited by Darth Vader after Order 66. Some of the Jedi, he was able to bring over their side, and they were used to hunt down the existing light yeah. side Jedi. So, And they all had this double-bladed spinning lightsaber you know lawnmower thing which is kind of silly but but the silliest <laughs> part of all is why people just let it spin up you know in every in every show it appears in they stand there and they hold it out and it goes i'm like why why do why are you waiting why are you waiting for this just just go in and hit him you know so yet another instance of that um but you know 
whatever. I, I'm just. It doesn't matter because she instantly wins the fight. So clearly, it was so. a bait. It was a bait by Ahsoka. Yeah, she knew what was going on. Also, the Inquisitors are in the Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor games. They're major antagonists. And they're great. Yeah. And the games. Kenobi show too. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I don't have any idea what Maruk is. Like that is a piece of Star Wars lore that I am completely unfamiliar with. What is he? Is he a is he a smoke monster? Is he just like a bunch of bugs filling up a suit? Like I have no I have no idea what that character is. Uh, I'm glad it didn't turn out to be Ezra in disguise, as we were a little bit worried about earlier. But uh, I I have no idea what that character was. I'm gonna have to look it up because uh, I just don't know. Is I don't, is he from Rebels? Who knows? I have no idea. I haven't watched the last two seasons of Rebels. Anyway, um, but uh, he didn't. And and I'm a little bit sad we didn't explore more of that character. Um, but, uh, who knows? Maybe he's going to come back. Maybe he can, as a smoke person, maybe he can put himself back in the suit and they can like duct tape that up and, uh, he'll be just fine. Who knows? <laughs> I have no idea. But, uh, but yeah, so he's theoretically dead. Um, the he's thing not that dead. let's be real, he's not dead. Uh, yeah. You could totally bring him back. I, I guess I, but I, don't also, um... I don't know the lore, so. There's also an interesting parallel here, uh, which has to be intentional, which is Maruk is the name in Arthurian mythology of a a guy. He's a he's like a wolf knight. He's hmm. kind of like a werewolf. So okay. he he gets turned into a werewolf. But Morgan Le Fay, the famous uh, magical Arthurian antagonist, is the one that taught. I'm trying to remember, guys, taught somebody to turn him into a wolf. Okay. And Morgan is Morgan Elsbeth. So they're clearly making some oh. Arthurian name references here, huh. which I think is interesting. Where that's, that's going, point. and if it goes anywhere, I don't know. Because it hasn't gone anywhere yet, but it, it definitely could go somewhere. That's a good point. Yeah, it might just be like a little nod to that, or it might be something bigger. But uh, speaking of like Arthurian-type stuff, I liked the the difference in styles between Ahsoka and uh, and Balin's skull, where his is very like knight in armor, you know, medieval-looking uh, lightsaber style. And it, and it, the thing with their fight on the map platform, first of all, it's a beautiful set piece. Like both of these episodes are just so gorgeous oh, yeah. to very, watch very from well done. you know the entire way through. Um, I have to add in a little caveat that I love the the big slow shots of the Rebel fleet with like Home One and all that. Oh, those always get me. I love the big ship shots. But anyway, back to the fight. Um, it's it's been. I feel like it's been so long since we've gotten a good lightsaber fight where the the lightsabers feel like they have weight behind them. You know, mm -hmm. and Agreed. and you mentioned the fight choreography being very good in this. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Is that we're taking things, we're slowing thing down, things down. You feel like the the characters are actually trying to hit each other rather than just you know do some sort of choreography session and all that. And there's a distinct difference in the choreography in terms of the skill that's on display between Balon and Ahsoka and Sabine and and Shin. Right, Shin and Sabine, they they both kind of look like amateurs, honestly. The way they do the choreography, they're both kind of flailing a little bit more. There's a more of a frantic element to it. They both kind of know the forms, but they're not as practiced with them. I feel like you can kind of see that in the fight. Whereas then you look at Balon and, and Ahsoka, like these are two masters, right? They know exactly what they're doing. Everything is done with intent. There's no you know, there's no flailing or, you know, panicking or anything like that. So I, I really liked the distinct difference between the fights because it could have easily just all been one big mash of light swinging, you know, 
but uh, they yeah. did a good job of making those fights feel you know real and, and heavy and meaningful so yeah and I, I really appreciate the different styles that we see from the various uh yeah. characters as well like it's very cool to see the integration of of blasters into sabine which if you guys have played uh Jedi Survivor is one of the the lightsaber styles that's in that game is, you know, one hand with the blaster and one hand with the lightsaber. Uh, you get to feel more of the kind of medieval broadsword style that comes out of Balin and then mm. the more kind of nimble acrobatic two sword style that uh, Japanese derived style that comes from Ahsoka. So it's really fun to see the interplay of styles. And you even get to see Anakin style later on uh, when he appears, which is more reminiscent of the prequel trilogies, but in my opinion is more grounded and kind of feels better than all of the flipping around and extra flourishes that they tried to throw into the prequels. Yeah. Uh, so all of that I thought was really well done and really enjoyable and was more, I think, believable, realistic, um, like you said, it has weight behind it. It feels like there's consequences to this sword play. I mean, and can we talk about the force for a second too? And just what a great like exploration of the force in general this this show is kind of becoming. And and one of the main reasons why it is such a good proper sequel to you know Return of the Jedi is that I feel like we're we're learning more about people's relationship with the force in this right because Balon Skull is actively using the force. Uh, not just to throw things around, but to get inside people's heads and kind of manipulate people and all that. You know, when Sabine has the gun to the the map thing, and you know, at first he's like, "You should do it. Your master would want you to do that." You know, and and he's being serious. He kind of just accepts things as they are. You know, but then he's let. Then you know, you see him pause and look into her mind, and and then use what he finds there to sort of like exploit her emotions and, and get her to agree to come with him and all that kind of stuff. And I'm but like, he doesn't betray that... her at the end either. He no, actually he follows through with it, which I think is very interesting. And it right. does set him apart from the, the, the Sith that we see other places who would manipulate, manipulate you and then just kill yeah. you. Right. Cause he's uh, not, he he's says, not Sith. he says he's a man of his word and he's yeah. going to do it. And I think there's, there's a difference there too, where you could say he's, I think there's even a technical thing with this, where there, you would call them dark Jedi, right? Where they're not right. Sith. Yeah, yeah. They don't ascribe to Sith ideology, which is a whole different ball game. That's like the cackling evil kind of stuff where this is more, they just don't care about being good. They just want to achieve their, their ends. Like in D and D terms, you would call this lawful evil, right? Where mm -hmm. you are true to your word, you abide by a set of your own, you know, circumstances, but you're not above hurting people or, you know, doing things that seem unsavory to get what you want, right? So, but yeah, he is a, he is a man of his word, and and he shows that, and and I think that's that's great about his character. But you know, more than anything, you see, we see a true, you know, master of the force here too, where he's got the, both the martial and the mystical, you know, down, right? Which we're we've we just don't get a lot of that. Excuse me, in new Star Wars, right? It's all lightsabers, right? Or it's all like throwing rocks or something like that. You know, it's we don't get to see the mental element, the mystical element of the Force kind of on display like this um, very often, which is too bad because it's one of the most interesting things about the whole concept of it. So it's great that we're getting that with this show, you know, and it just makes Balon Skull that much more interesting too. So, um, and I, I also, love that. Oh, go ahead. Also, I was going to say that one of the other interesting mythological references that is made here is that Skull and Hati are the names of the wolves in Norse mythology that chase the sun and moon across the sky. 
So in Norse mythology, uh, wow. Skull is the wolf that chases the sun, which is in a chariot. And then Hati is the wolf that chases the moon. Hmm. And that's what causes the movement of the sun and the moon in the sky. And basically, they're on an endless chase of these celestial objects until Ragnarok. And one of the signs of Ragnarok is that they catch up to the sun and moon and eat them. Hmm. And I'm wondering where this is this uh, illusion is going within this show in the same way that we talked about uh, Maruk and Morgan. Yeah, because they, they definitely have a different... Balan Skull definitely has a different objective than uh, Morgan Elsbeth. She just wants to go grab Thrawn, bring him back, and start a new war and win it. Balan Skull, you know, he the only thing he's really said is that he's he's after achieving something that would give them unlimited power, you know? So what will he do with that, you know, once he gets it? Who knows? But uh, that does kind of play into that whole Ragnarok sort of theme that you just mentioned. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah. All right. Um, cool. Sometimes my deep knowledge of mythology is useful. Yeah. And, like, I know things <laughs> like Salacious Crumb has to make Jabba the Hutt laugh once a day or he, or he dies. So that's, well, that's what a team too. we are, Doa. I know, right? <laughs> that's, we got it all. We got all the bases covered on Trivia Night. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the one thing that I, I didn't really like that much in, in episode four, I have to bring it up, is that at the end when Hera shows up with the X-Wing pilots and all that, she shows up in, in Ghost and then the X-Wing pilots are there and the, the ring flies off in hyperspace. We do see two X-Wing pilots die um, and no one really ever talks about it. Like no one really even mentions it or reacts to it. I'm like, two people just died. And like, this seems like a pretty tight knit group. They were willing to go against the rest of the, you know, the new Republic to join her and all that. And they're they're just gone, and uh, and everyone seems to be like, eh, that's that's okay. Really, Whatever. that was your biggest problem. So my yeah. biggest problem was the fact that Hera took her son on a mission of mutiny and put him <laughs> in direct physical danger. Hey, uh, I would call child protective services on Hera instantly. <laughs> by the way, they don't she have is an incredibly irresponsible mother because let's think about it. Hera knows. So Hera thinks mm -hmm. I have to go on this mission because there is a dangerous force of Imperial loyalists building up in this system. Uh, and she tells her child son, instead of just leaving him on the ship and saying, Hey, can you like look after him for a bit? I have to go do this incredibly dangerous thing. She puts him on the ship with her knowing she's going to go into potentially some sort of battle to the degree that she also convinces a bunch of X-Wings pilots to come after her. Now, why would you do that if you didn't think there was a dangerous circumstance? Then she goes directly into combat with her kid. This is, she is a crazy bad parent. Holy uh, moly, Doa. Yeah, there's no explanation besides it's Star Wars and having kid characters <laughs> is what the kids want. So, so yeah, there you go. That's that's fine. Um, he's a force user. He's he's the, we find out in the next episode. I'm sure if you watch Rebels, you know this. I didn't know this because I didn't watch the last two seasons of Rebels, but he's the son of Hera and uh, Kanan, who is a, a Jedi that trained Ezra in, in Rebels. So he can use the force himself. But apparently... Uh, he didn't get the headtails. He just got green hair, I guess, in the the genetics. So. He didn't even get one headtail. No, right? not even one. Yeah, I don't know. So kind of kind of got ripped off, I guess, in the, in that sense. But, uh, but anyway, so he's he's around. Um, I I really do. I I gotta say, I really like. I'm trying to find his name again because uh, I forgot. It. Oh yeah, the uh, uh, Paul Sun Young Lee or Lee Sun Young, uh, the uh, the Korean actor that plays uh, from Kim's Convenience. 
on uh, Netflix, which is a pretty pretty funny sitcom that uh, also plays the rebel pilot that uh, we see pop up in The Mandalorian. He's in kind of all the series as sort of a side character, but now he's becoming more of a main side character. And it's fun to see someone that has no connection to the Force. He's not a big hero. He's just kind of a dude trying to do his job. And like his responses to everything are just kind of like, oh, okay, this is happening now. <laughs> it's like, I'm just kind of, you know, I, I think this is an important thing, so I'm going to do it. But, you know, he's he's just kind of so, you know, blasé about everything that happens to the point where in episode five when he's like, wait, how can this kid know this stuff? And she's like, oh, well, his dad was a Jedi. So he's just like, okay. What am I missing? What just happened? Jason has abilities. His father, Kanan Jarrus, was a Jedi. Okay. <laughs> Just walk. I love it. I love that character. He's he is the everyman in the Star Wars universe, which is which is nice to have, you know. Which is he's just he, not surprised he by. He's kind of yeah. Yeah, he's not surprised. He's been through no. it all before. He's just gonna do his job. He's he's yeah. the he's the blue collar X wing pilot. It's yep. great. I actually do enjoy him as well. Yeah, he's he's become he's bec the first one I saw him show up. I was like I couldn't get I couldn't separate the Kim's convenience uh, from the Star Wars there for a while. But he's he's solidified uh, himself uh, to me as as a fun character in these series. I, I like it when he shows up now. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Episode Five. So. Big reveal at the end of episode four. Guess who's back? Back again. It's Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. Digitally altered Hayden Christensen. <laughs> Slightly uh, de-aged, but he's, if, you, <laughs> if you see him in real life, I don't think they had to do too much. Uh, yeah, he is definitely de-aged, though, and they did the smart thing of putting him in the dark, just like they did with Indiana <laughs> Jones on the de-aging, and having him move in action scenes so but it's less not, obvious. He's not old or anything like that. Let, let me let me see. How, how old is he? Because I bet he's... I bet he's around my age or something, and I'm not mid forties. I would say. Yeah, um, he is. Let's see. You are a boomer, though. I'm sorry. I'm not a no. Boomers are the people that were like baby boomers. You're a you're a, you're a spiritual boomer. We all are spiritual boomer. He was. Oh yeah. So he's two years older than me, right? So yeah, yeah. and you know, so they don't need to do a whole lot with him to you know de-age him. But there's there's a little bit of smoothing going on. But they also have to do stuff with his makeup too because he kind of goes through dark side and light side versions of himself throughout the episode and. And this episode is kind of like Ahsoka's examination of her past and her relationship with the Force and the the influence her master had on her when that master is the person who turned into Darth Vader. So it's kind of the, the episode is an interesting concept, I would say. Um, and the, the thing that was most interesting to me that they brought up is that the generations of Jedi from Obi-Wan's generation and Anakin's generation are very different in that, uh, you know, Anakin in the episode brings up the past brings it up that when um, he was kind of being trained initially and Obi-Wan was trained, they were being trained as just keepers of the peace. You know, they would just show up if they really needed someone to go and do it. They were, you know, diplomats and things like that. Whereas now this generation uh, of Jedi has to be soldiers, essentially. And so that brings up all sorts of different, you know, thoughts about what's your relationship with the Force, violence that's involved in that. So I thought that was a good point that I never really thought about, is that there's very distinct different generations of Jedi happening within the prequels and the old, the OT trilogy. So I also think what's, what's conceptually interesting about this is one of the features of shamanism across a variety of cultures is that you have to have a kind of a near death experience that you fight your way back from. And that is what is the final stage of 
becoming a shaman, right? Mm -hmm. Or re in this case, realizing the pinnacle of your spiritual powers. And so by putting her in this alternate state where it is very explicitly about she must fight for her life and choose whether she wants life or death and go through this hardship uh, and revisit all of these old memories and come out the other side through mm -hmm. victory uh, is really, really reminiscent of many cultures' uh, shamanic initiations. And so I, I particularly enjoyed that, that part of it. Yeah, it was neat to see, and and it, it was a good journey for that character to go through because you can tell she's trying to be the wise master, right? But at the same time, she has a sort of conflicted background as well, and and she kind of goes through a Gandalfian transition, I suppose you could say, at the end, where at the, you know she they they come back, and then she's suddenly in this like white poncho kind of this white robe, and it's like now I am Ahsoka the White. I've come back to you now <laughs> to uh, lead you to the last episode. <laughs> but uh, or I don't know how many episodes there are, but you know, I think I think this was really visually well done, though. I like yeah. the fact that they put them in this uh, these walkways in, in this kind of nebulous star realm. That's the thing uh, for the... rebels, I think. That, yeah. That this, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's really good. I think it's really interesting to look at just the visuals of this episode too, with Anakin flipping between the Jedi into uh, having the red lightsaber and then into Darth Vader and kind of masking that in the fog and the shadows is really mm -hmm. beautiful. I think it's they just nailed the the visual appeal of this episode, and then also recasting Rosario Dawson uh, as a kind of young teen Ahsoka and showing her relationship and how she grew, and then also having kind of her current knowledge in her old in her younger self mm -hmm. and having the conversations about the siege of Mandalore and everything like that and explaining to Anakin what that was. It's just a really excellent dreamlike interplay, and to bring this back to our other shows, Noah. Uh, I wish that this had been what Siri had in the desert scenes in The Witcher, because this actually yeah, felt point. transformative for mm -hmm. Ahsoka as a character. And you could see her kind of reaching the next stage of realization and, and reconciling with her past in a way that the Siri episode where she's wandering around the desert was just extremely boring and did nothing, right? Yeah. Uh, this was a much more successful iteration of that trope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It's that's that's a really great uh, comparison to make uh, because one you have uh, someone wandering around with a unicorn and then like uh, you know melee killing a, a giant monster for no reason and then uh, with this yeah you have Ahsoka revisit some very difficult things in her past you know both when her master was with her and when he wasn't with her you know her dealing with that transition where now she goes back and revisits this with that that knowledge of what he becomes too like you said the flashes of him being Vader here and there too are weighing on her and and. Yeah, it was it was very very neat. It was neat to see Hayden Christensen in the Clone Wars Anakin uh, costume and stuff too. They did a good job of bringing him back to that view because I did watch the Clone Wars and all that, and they basically just copied everything exactly. And so it was neat to see that in a, in a live action setting. I thought. I also think it's it's an interesting exploration that hasn't, to my knowledge, really been done in Star Wars before, hmm. where you talk about what is the purpose of the Jedi and. It, 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 Anakin very explicitly states that it used to be that they were keepers of the peace, but now they had to be soldiers in this conflict. Yeah. And so it brings up questions like, are were the Jedi supposed to be utilitarian for the time, or were they supposed to be a timeless uh, a timeless order that had a certain ideology which they always followed? And I think you can see in, in Anakin's character, 
it was his belief that the ends, it, it, we know that it was his belief that the ends justified the means and that he was essentially a, a power hungry utilitarian at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And Ahsoka is trying to reconcile that. And I think that she does have internal conflict about whether or not her training has affected her negatively because she was trained very specifically to be a soldier, to be a combatant. And maybe that has tainted her in some way. Yeah, and you also have to keep in mind, too, uh, that Ahsoka was uh, basically kicked out of the Jedi Order, too, where she was an apprentice and then in the Clone Wars she was framed for murder and basically had to go and exonerate herself and didn't get any help from the, the Jedi Order. They basically just kind of left her out to dry, essentially. And so uh, at the end, she was exonerated after they had kicked her out. And they're like, well, you can come back now. And she was like, no, I don't think I will. And she just walked away from that too so there's that aspect of of it as well where the jedi kind of messed up when it came to like supporting her in a time when she really needed it and they didn't do that um but it's it's interesting too because if you look at like yoda and obi-wan they probably would have seen the jedi order as this pillar of stability and principle that would be unchanging whereas then you know the clone wars happen and obviously that is like um things are different right people do have to take on that different role and that does make, uh, you know, and that probably led to a lot of the Jedi becoming Inquisitors and things too, right? Um, so it's it's pretty it's pretty neat, and and it's like this is again another reason why this is a proper sequel arc to the original trilogy because it takes what exists and it expands on that in a philosophical way, in a, in a thought process kind of way, you know, and gives us new characters we actually care about and can see change, you know, it doesn't just dredge up the past and. You look at like what we just talked about with that examination of the Force and the Jedi's role in the universe, and then think about the Last Jedi, where you just have like poor, you know, poor Mark Hamill having to play this like corrupted weirdo version of Luke Skywalker, being like, "It's time for the Jedi to end," and he's just like on himself, you know, on an island by himself, <laughs> just doing nothing anyway, and he's just this curmudgeon old man drinking uh, drinking milk straight out of the the utter of the giant space cow or whatever it is, you know. So it's like. It's it's they're trying two two uh, entities two pieces of media that are trying to do the same thing and one horrifically fails and one does a very good job and and so I'm glad we have Dave Filoni at the helm um, even though he is kind of the king of filler episodes as well in terms of like he's a lot also of stuff we don't he's need. also he the king it. he really gets it he's also the king of writing really terrible dialogue uh, the uh, amount proper spiritual of... successor to, uh, to no Mr. no. No, no, no. The really? original trilogy had way better dialogue than this. The amount of just throwaway lines in all of these episodes is just ludicrous, uh, especially when they're about to fight. They just say the most random shit that doesn't need Going to be said. somewhere. Going somewhere? Exactly. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand a lot of the a lot of the dialogue that's occurring. Fortunately, yeah. the actors are good, so it, they are. it kind of softens the blow a lot of the time. But yeah, I mean, overall, the, to me, but... the, the the dialogue is just it's absolutely miserable, um, yeah. and it's much worse than the original trilogy. And it, oh. especially because the last show that I watched was Andor, which has an incredibly oh. good dialogue. Yeah. It's very very difficult to watch this show during. So I just have to plug my ears and just look at the pretty pictures uh, at times. <laughs> ah, you've learned how to watch Star Wars. That's that's good. All right. But uh did you did you notice too did you recognize young Ahsoka's uh as actor? 
That's no, uh, I didn't. That's Ariana Greenblatt, who famously played uh, young Gamora in Avengers Endgame. She's oh. was like, oh, what did it cost you? You know, um, I, I recognized right away. I was like that Leonardo DiCaprio uh, meme where it's like that, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I, I recognize that person. Um, so she has become sort of the default uh, young main character actor in a, in a movie. So alien actor. <laughs> There you go. In yeah. heavy makeup. <laughs> yeah, it has to, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see what uh, what the future holds. But, uh, but yeah, so far she's been very green and she's been very red um, or orange kind of, I guess. Orange. But uh, either way, she does a great job. I, I think I think she's a great actor and, and she uh, she killed it as uh, as young Ahsoka. So uh, cool to see her back in a, in a strangely similar role to, uh, to the one she played in Endgame, which is which is interesting. But that, that was fun to, to kind of point out. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I what I also uh, want to shout out is Rosario Dawson's continuing excellent performance, oh, especially absolutely. at the very end of episode five when uh, she's talking to Hu Yang about going inside the Pergil space <laughs> whale, and she just has this wonderful self satisfied smirk on her face, and mm-hmm. she plays this kind of almost Buddhist amusement and calm uh so well in this show and you get this restrained sense of humor and sense of adventure from her that is almost entirely done through her eyes and her face and it really comes across well and i think she is just absolutely insane at this part and this part could be really boring if if this was a bad actress this part would be ahsoka would be terrible but mm-hmm. it, she really is making making the most out of the role which i appreciate she's doing a she's you know bringing a lot to it but she's also doing a very good continuation of what that character's personality always was like i i i fail to recall uh really many other if any other instances where i saw um a character act so much as an older version of that character as you would logically think that character would become um, with everything that young Ahsoka went through, because when we meet that character, she's a, ch- a child, essentially, you know, it's like in the flashback, goes through all the stuff in the Clone Wars, um, you know, always does have that sort of like, uh, you know, kind of humorous edge to us where she kind of does look at the world through sort of a, a cynical, humorous kind of lens. And then seeing that develop into sort of like with, you know, wisdom and experience that becomes what Rosario Dawson is doing as that character. So I think it's such a great logical development of that character's personality too and and it, you feel like she really understands that character as uh, as it appeared in other franchises and done a good job of being herself but then also you know being a good continuation of that character so i i like the the care that she seems to put into uh, into the role in the character it really does show through i i think it's also really difficult to have a show that is based around a character who is primarily an observer because Ahsoka is somebody who prefer she prefers to uh, just be the one watching her surroundings and reacting to them rather than necessarily be the one who's taking bold action a lot of the time. And that's really hard to do, I think, as a main character, and they do it very well here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they fly away in the space or the star whale, I guess, uh, at the, at the end, uh, which is cool. I think it's really neat. Like talk about expanding the star Wars universe. Like it's cool that there's this creature out there that is so big and has this ability to travel through hyperspace. Like that's neat. You know, why can't we have that in star Wars? And so uh, why can't you jump in its mouth and do that? I, I, I like that. I like that. We're seeing something new in the universe, you know, and obviously it was in the cartoons. It was in the rebels cartoons, but, uh, 
but it's you know it's new for all of us that didn't didn't watch that as much and it's it's cool yeah i think i think this is one of the most successful parts of this show because it really highlights the difference between the means of the characters within this show right because on the one hand you have everybody having the same goal which is to get into this other galaxy and even though some of them want to go there to save Ezra and some of them want to go there to save Thrawn they all want to go to the same place right Mm -hmm. and it's the means that is different so Morgan and her henchmen are trying to build this you know find this artifact get this map build this fantastical structure and more or less brute force their way into this other galaxy And I think what's elegant is, again, Ahsoka is a much more reactive than active character. So after the action takes place, she is then trying to problem solve and uses the much more subtle and light touch of communicating with the Pergil in order to basically hitch a ride Mm. uh, to where she wants to go. And she obviously doesn't know that where she's going. She explicitly states that because the creatures are making that decision, but it's more of a, an inherent trust and affinity for the natural world. And this also ties into what I said earlier about her undergoing basically a shamanic initiation, which is an Mm. animistic, uh, there, all those are animistic traditions, right? And they're all about communion with the natural world and being part of a larger natural whole. And she then doesn't force the Pergil to do it. She basically asks permission and is granted it by this creature right before the jump. Mm. So I think it draws really interesting lines um, and themes about what is the proper way to do something and makes a very stark differentiation between how the characters go about achieving their goals in this show, which I think is really good and really powerful. Yeah, yeah, you have the light side uh, kind of being one with nature, you know, sort of fitting into their surroundings, and then you have the dark side brute forcing it, like you said, you know, working through domination and, uh, you know, subjugation of their surroundings, you know? And it's, it's a, you, you see themes of that in things like Lord of the Rings as well, right? We have like Saruman builds this big, you know, mechanical, you know, empire essentially to this big war machine essentially, right? To like take over. Whereas the good guys generally kind of try to work within the framework of the the natural world. Yeah, exactly. The ants go marching. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it is neat to kind of see that kind of theme, uh, pop up again. Um, Oh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, did you do you want to hear the most hilarious like a uh, fan theory ever about the show that uh, that I've heard? And it's it's okay. so it's it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But I, I saw this floating around that there's and it's I think it's kind of a joke as well. I don't think I I hope not too many people are thinking this seriously. But there's this this fan rumor going around that Balon Skull is the uh, little boy from episode three where Anakin comes in to slaughter the younglings and he's like, Master Skywalker, what should we do? And then he's like, lightsaber. And then, so people are like, oh, maybe that's the kid, you know? And I'm like, they both have blonde hair. And I'm like, well, first of all, like Balin Skull has kind of like white hair now. Are you sure his hair was blonde before that? Um, and also like the timeline does not line up at all for that. If that, that kid was like five years old in, in <laughs> Sith, he would have been... You know, he'd be like maybe in his 40s or something now, right? I think mid-20s, um, actually, right? Not, like Yeah, 20s. I mean, he, he certainly wouldn't be in his, like, 60s, like Balon Skull certainly <laughs> is. Maybe even older, because we know Jedi can, can you know, live for a while. But 
Um, yeah, so that's but that I saw that theory floating around as a mostly as a meme, but I, I think people I think some people were taking it seriously too, which which was hilarious to me. So I had to bring that they up. They probably just don't want the reality, which is that kid was <laughs> murdered by Anakin yeah, Skywalker. He's dead. he's dead, sorry. Like all those kids in that room were killed by Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. That's well established. I mean, there's a holovid that Obi Wan saw of him slaughtering younglings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's my Obi-Wan impression you know, when he saw the, the hollow bit of Anakin slaughtering younglings. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to say slaughtering younglings a couple times in this episode, and I've achieved my goal, so we can we can move on. But uh, the, the title of episode five was Shadow Warrior, which which is, again, I think they're titling these episodes very well, because that, that label could apply to basically everyone using the Force in the series right now, you know, is that there's this gray area that exists. So... Uh, you know, to, to kind of wrap things up, I guess it's it's really interesting where they're going in terms of the journey of all of these Force users right now. Um, who knows where Shin Hati is going to end up, right? Because she sees her master doing all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think we can safely surmise that she's going to lose him somewhere along the way in the near future. And I could see her going either way. You know, going good or bad at this point. You know, depending on. You know, how the story sort of plays out. You know, what's Sabine's role going to be in all this? You know, we would assume she's going to come back around. But now she potentially has uh, a new war uh, that she directly, you know, is responsible for on her hands if they do bring Thrawn back to the, the main galaxy. Which, you know, based on the other Star Wars things we've heard are kind of in the pipeline, sounds likely. So that's going to be a major thing for her character to deal with. But... Yeah, I feel like we've just got a lot to look forward to uh, with this series. Um, I'm I'm excited about it in a way that I have not been excited about new Star Wars in a, in a while. You know, in a different way from Andor. Andor was just great drama. Andor was fantastic. This I'm excited about in like more of a classic little kid Star Warsy sense. You know. Yeah, and I'm just excited that we're finally going to get to see Thrawn, I hope, in the next yeah. episode. I've been waiting for this payoff. And I do appreciate the slower pacing of this show where they don't blow their load all at once <laughs> and we get to see some level of character development. Maybe I would have liked to see not so many filler scenes. We could have uh, just skipped episode three. Episode three, yeah. take like <laughs> the two scenes that were relevant in that episode and just stick them at the beginning of episode four. Like... Yeah, we could have been one episode farther ahead right now, but aside from episode three, I've really enjoyed this series. Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty good. I think they they did nail the visuals, and I've been really enjoying that. It's the dialogue that I think really drags this show down in many ways. But I'm willing to forgive it because I do, at the end of the day, find this to be pretty entertaining, and it, I feel like it is going somewhere, and it has the potential. Again, it, the same thing we said about the first couple episodes. I think it has the potential to be very good once they start to introduce the central conflict. Mm -hmm. I just kind of wish we had been able to get there a little bit faster because at the end of the day, Thrawn is infinitely more interesting than Morgan. Well, we'll see. We'll see how Lars Nixon does, but I would imagine he probably will be. The the uh I I'm glad that again this is this is progressing like a Star Wars film would. It feels it really feels like a Star Wars film in a way that you know, Star Wars films haven't felt like since Return of the Jedi probably. Um so it's it's exciting that we're getting to this point where you know, I think I think Dave Filoni as well, you know, he's as the kind of the showrunner for a lot of this stuff is having to make an adjustment too from going to, from the animated world to the live action world with Star Wars. And that's obviously an adjustment that takes time. You're not going to get it right, you know, immediately. And But I feel like things are really coming around for the most part to produce some, some compelling stuff. And 
So yeah, hopefully this is just a, a sign of good things to come. But then again, Mandalorian season three was pretty bad. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a coin flip. Maybe it's just always a coin flip. I'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, uh, uh, we'll be back to, I think, close out on Ahsoka in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you then. 